0: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I have with me David Brown, Angie Martosio, Andy Green, and Simon Vozek levinson And it is more or less Bob Dylan's 80th birthday. It was his 80th birthday the other day. Happy birthday, Bob Dylan. Someone told a story about when it was Bob's birthday one day on the Rolling Thunder tour, and the whole crowd sang happy birthday to him, and he hid facing the amps while they sang. So I can only imagine his reaction to the world's celebration of his 80th birthday. I'm sure he clicked on every listicle uh, and just really basked, in it just really felt the world's love, and, and it was great for him. Andy, how do, think, how do you think Bob spent his 80th birthday?
1: I think it's worth noting that his only social media posts that mentioned it were selling a new edition of his Heaven's Gate whiskey brand. That was the only formal that was the only marking of it you know he was photographed by the paparazzi recently which is pretty rare and so he's still upright but he hasn't you know i imagine his birthday was quiet dinner at his house in malibu or something i just have no idea
2: we know that the things that bob does for fun what he paints he uh he sculpts those wrought iron gates that he likes to do that the whiskey brand is named after he probably did some nice wrought iron sculpting and painting is if i had to guess and, and then maybe a nice dinner that sounds about right
0: bob's tour finally came to a halt for a year he spent the last year at home and that is a year i'm very curious about we'll never probably find out but this is a man who has been on tour consistently since since when andy
1: well he started the never-ending tour back in 1988 but his last year where he didn't make one live appearance that the entire year was 1977 before 2020
0: so this is a probably a bit of a stir crazy bob dylan i imagine unless you know unless he he Realize that he liked it, and maybe he'll cut down on, on touring here in his ninth decade.
1: Yeah, that there's been no announcement of more dates yet when plenty of acts are announcing shows at this point. He could be on the road as soon as like next month if he wanted to be and there's no word yet. I
0: would like to thank him for not saying anything weird about the virus, unlike some of his uh, classic rock contemporaries. He said not one weird or disturbing thing about COVID-19. There's still time, but he said nothing. The only thing he propagated conspiracy theories about was the JFK assassination, and he did so so artfully in uh, that tremendous song that I'm actually inclined to, to forgive him. I think that 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 song was uh, magnificent, and he did give us a new album. Pretty good album. A little sleepy, but great stuff on it. Simon does not think it was sleepy.
2: Not sleepy at all. That, that is a, a wide-awake, fully alert Dylan album. But
0: it is an opportunity to reflect upon all that Bob Dylan has given us, and he's, he's given us a lot. Um, maybe we'd start by taking a look at this list that we at Rolling Stone released this week to celebrate the birthday. And it was the uh, 80 greatest covers of Bob Dylan's songs. And let's start with an argument. Ranked very high on that list is Knocking on Heaven's Door by Guns N' Roses. And certainly when I was in high school, I thought that absolutely ruled. I don't know. I don't know if it's great or horrible. Bob apparently hated it. When he was asked about it, he, he said something very interesting about Guns N' Roses, basically suggested that they were fake which I don't agree with him on, but it, he, he was not a fan of it, which isn't unsurprising. And I just don't know if it's good or ridiculous. I I, I can't decide. We're, we're, we're Obviously, we institutionally landed on great since it's like number seven on the list, but what do we think? Be honest.
3: Mama, take this for me.
4: I sort of scratched my head a little bit at that one too, being so high up on the list. You know, I think it's also a case where I mean, Bob's original of that, I mean, most of his originals are hard to talk, but that one in particular, Bob's original is so, it's so kind of ghostly and powerful. And I always found the Guns N' Roses one kind of screeching. And uh, so, I, yeah, I, w- I wish it had been a little lower on the list myself, I have to say.
1: Yeah, if you look at the Guns N' Roses songs where they covered 1973 soundtrack classics, it's the worst. Live and Let Die is much, much better for a 1973 psych soundtrack song by Guns N' Roses. I feel that strongly.
2: I'll just jump in here. I'll, I'll stand up for the Guns N' Roses cover of Knockin' on the Heaven's Door. I, like you, Brian, I absolutely th- thought that song ruled in high school. Uh, my opinion of it might have dimmed a little bit since then, but I, I still think it rules. It's great. It, it does have a, a somewhat ridiculous, over-the-top theatrical quality, as all great Guns N' Roses songs have. To David's point, yeah, maybe it doesn't have like sort of the that spooky, elegiac power that Dylan's original has, but it, it impresses me in the way that it sort of transforms that song into something completely different, into this kind of like huge histrionic arena rock thing. I think it's a great cover.
4: The life lesson here is that things that you loved when you were young in high school don't always age well. <laughs> I learned that lesson no, my, myself.
0: I've staked a horrible amount of my career on uh, believing that many of the things that I love in high school still are great. But but I'm with you. Angie, what do you think? <laughs> Let's just talk about Guns N' Roses not gonna happen for a while. I think it's a, a fruitful topic.
5: My only take is that I have never liked Guns N' Roses and it's oh my the God. only it's the only song that I will tolerate, probably because it's a Dylan song, but especially with like Axles singing there, I could always deal with that. More so than any of their other hits on classic rock radio.
4: It's also an incredibly, I mean, I love the song, but it's its a very simple song. It's one of Bob's simpler tunes in terms of the verse structure. There aren't that many verses.
0: Well, so as often with Bob, there's a possibly very complicated and strange joke embedded in that song. Now, we know thanks to these leaked interviews that were never released before, that were on our site uh, within the last couple of years, that Bob, when he first heard the song Helpless by Neil Young... He hated it. He was making fun of the, of how it just, he's like, it was a drag, man. They just kept singing Helpless, Helpless, Helpless. And after a while, you're like, what the fuck is this? That's his actual quote. Helpless,
3: helpless, helpless. Helpless.
0: So he then rewrites Helpless, a song he disliked, into Knocking on Heaven's Door, which actually has the same repetitious Structure arguably a better song. They're so similar that, I'm, as I'm sure Andy is dying to tell us, that Neil and Bob once medleyed it, I believe the first time they ever performed together, right? Yeah, it
1: was in 1975 at the Snack Benefit concert in San Francisco, when, for reasons that are still unknown, they changed it to Knocking on Dragon's Door. <laughs> But they did Help Us too. It was this crazy mashup where they were backed by the band. It's a very weird thing.
2: That quote that you're talking about, Brian, blew my mind when I first read it. I mean, that's the, one of the great things about Dylan is you can never tell, even with sometimes his songs that seem most profound and emotionally deep, you can never tell if it's actually some kind of joke that he's playing on us, the listener, or, or whoever else. I think it's a great
0: instance of the sort of meta games he often is playing, I which I think came to their greatest peak on Chronicles, his book, in Chronicles, his book, where there's passages that make more sense once you know where he was taking some of the language from. There's really, it's not been sort of proven beyond a doubt that he was playing collage games in that book and that sometimes were meant to be found and actually lent meaning to the passages. So the idea that Knock on Heaven's Door has this weird joke embedded in it is very strange to me. But I don't think there's any doubt that that's the case. They're, this, they're very similar. It's not quite uh, legally liable for being similar, but they are essentially the same song.
1: And Bob's talked about being jealous of Neil Young in that time period. In very early 70s, Bob seemed to be a bit over that self-portrait. And New Morning didn't sell well. Neil's exploding. And Bob hears Heart of Gold on the radio and was resentful of it. He was like, this should be me.
0: Right. So hence the complications of this, what I would argue, the joke that's in, in "Knocking on Heaven's Door, which, which is, you know, it, it, it does show. I mean, this is a guy who, unsurprisingly, is Bob Dylan, but he's sometimes working on levels that, <laughs> that are sort of levels upon levels.
4: The serious part of the song is that it was for the soundtrack of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, and it was in the scenes right before Pat Garrett, James Coburn, does kill Billy Chris Christopherson. So, I mean, there's this, there's, you know, yeah, it's, it's complicated. It's serious. It's maybe a joke, which really sums up a lot of Dylan. <laughs> yeah, it does operate on all these different levels.
0: The last thing I'll say about knocking on heaven's door, because apparently we could do a whole episode on it, is there was a Music Cares tribute to Bob Dylan a few years ago. And They often kind of drag their feet in releasing the DVDs of these things, or I'm not going to buy a DVD at this point in 2021, but at least like a digital stream or something you can buy. It's still not officially available. But apparently uh, Springsteen, with the house band and with Tom Morello covered "Knocking on on Heaven's Door, and we, we heard maybe 30 seconds of it officially released. Maybe fifteen seconds, and Dylan said it was like the best version of Knock on Heaven's Door" he's ever heard. It was the only time he's ever heard it like the original. But the really funny part about that is in the clip that is available, M- Morello is totally doing a Morello thing over the song. It's like it's like really Bob. That's <laughs> do you remember a dude like going wiki wiki woo on your on your original version? Because this does not. Sound. Anyway, uh, but but that I'd like to hear that whole version. And of course, just how these things go, it is uh not able to be heard. I think probably it's, if I had to guess, it's waiting on one signature from Bob that he's refusing to give.
1: Well, and Bob's speech was so crazy that night. I think that's a problem too. He kind of roasted people and was like really petty and weird.
0: I think he's proud of that speech. But I do think that that speech is, I've sort of said this before, it's a little bit of like a Rosetta Stone or just a, a key to the locker as far as where Bob's mind is and where Bob's mind is, is, is like pretty resentful and stuff and, and pretty kind of, it, it's so fascinating that someone so acclaimed could feel so unappreciated. But someday maybe we'll hear that. We, we were able to read that speech. I think Gandhi wrote it up. But looking at the rest of the list, I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, number one is of course, Jimi Hendrix's version of All on the Watchtower. It's one of those things like, is there anything left to say about something like that, David?
4: Well, I think there was in the sense that, I mean, you know, one of the things that just sort of blew my mind looking at the final list, and even the ones that we didn't have room for, was, you know, how many (laughs) Dylan covers there are. It's simplistic, but I mean, I think we've all grown up hearing various versions of Dylan songs, but when you see like a a huge list like ours, and there were probably another 80 others that we were on consideration, so many things I had forgotten or didn't know of nancy sinatra doing i think it was ain't me babe and stuff but when you look at this whole list some are faithful to the original some are not as good and i think what still jumps out about Jimi hendrix's all on the watchtower is how he really just completely recast the song and maybe it's one of the only examples where he topped the dylan version. i mean he gave it all new and all new sonic kind of uh palette
5: i will also say that while this list was like a gift to Dylan for his birthday, I think it also helps for a lot of non Dylan fans. We even have some colleagues who were like, I love Bob Dylan songs. I just don't like it when he sings them. So that's why like this list is so incredible how many there are. And the Hendrix one, I really would say that, I, th- I agree with David that um, it's the, really the one that tops the original. And I think Dylan even said that reportedly in a quote.
1: Yeah, and a key thing about it is Bob had never played the song live before the Hendrix cover came out so every version live he did afterwards starting in 74 was kind of taken off the Hendrix version it's like Hendrix rewrote the song just permanently and even Dylan he was never able to go back to the original one
4: yeah Bob's never played it like acoustically again has he do we know I mean I, no never yeah he's just gone back to the Hendrix arrangement kind of ever since it's fascinating
0: There is a weird thing, one of the reasons why covers work so well with Bob is, first of all, you know, obviously Bob Dylan, pretty good songwriter. Second of all, I would disagree. With all due respect to our colleagues, I find it a little tiresome when people are like, I like Bob Dylan, like his voice, like his voice is great, shut up. But um, that, <laughs> totally. that they, you're allowed to say that, I guess, I think it's a little bit kind of close-minded. But I guess I get it. What I was going to say is that why his songs are so conducive to great covers is because sometimes he doesn't finalize the arrangement of songs sometimes. You know, it's, sometimes it's it's almost like his recordings are some... And he'll say this himself. And that this is actually why his justification for changing his songs every night is that his songs aren't finalized on record. And I f- feel like the example he always uses is The Who for some reason. He's always like, it's not like The Who. <laughs> you know, but I know, I know what he means because The Who... Pete Townsend is like a composer as well as a songwriter. So everything is so arranged and perfect and and it's just like a symphony that you play the same way because every part is there for a reason. With Bob, it's like he, sometimes it seems like he just wants to see how fast he can record the song. I know it's, there's a method to that madness, but sometimes it's kind of like that.
4: I remember when Slow Train Coming came out, which was 79, he gave an interview, and I think it was Rolling Stone, uh, where he basically was marveling at how professional it sounded to actually <laughs> you know, have this studio band and Mark Knopfler and Barry Beckett you know, all these all these pros down there making this record in muscle shows with him and he was like wow like you can really make a really tight professional studio album and at that point he'd been making records for 17 or 18 years so yeah i think there was a certain i wouldn't say slapdash but certain you know casual approach that he had for many many years and i think that that plays into what you're saying
3: brian
1: Yeah. You know, as a big Dylan fan, I view the versions on the albums as just the first versions that Tangled Up in Blue, that the first version is on Blood in the Tracks. And then for 45 years or so, he's been redoing it. And each version is unique and different and distinct and important. And what's on the album is just sort of his first, it's like the first demo or something. It just keeps evolving.
4: I think what also really helps with the covers in this case is that Bob is a really interesting case of a quote unquote singer songwriter who's written songs that aren't super personal. You know, there's something about them. That's universal in the lyrics. If you listen to a Joni Mitchell song or a Jackson Brown song or whatever, Paul Simon song from that era, you know, you can tell they're singing about very specific situations or people. And Bob hasn't done that to a vast degree that, that mystery, that enigmatic aspect that he, has cultivated about his personality and his music, I think benefits covers because you know it makes it more palatable maybe or easier to hear other people doing that because they're, they're not just repeating some incident in his life or something.
0: Well, I guess there have not been a lot of covers of Sarah or ballad in plain D, just as. I think I once heard a cover of Oh, Yoko. I think someone actually did cover Oh, Yoko, but there are certain songs that fall outside of that category, but absolutely.
4: And when Sarah came out, people were like, when he has that line in there, you know, I wrote Sad-Eyed Lady of Lowlands for You, people were stunned and outraged. Like, what? He's actually specifying?
0: Oh, my God. <laughs> but plus, as Andy is about to tell you, his version of, of where he wrote it
1: and when is, is totally wrong, right? He supposedly wrote it in the studio at the end of the Blonde on Blonde sessions, not in the Chelsea Hotel, but he was living there at that time.
0: I mean, it is classically Bob, of course, to have what appears to be this this uh, this heart wrenching confession. It turns out to be a complete lie, is spectacular, or not? I mean, but possibly a complete lie. But to complete the thought about the arrangements, I mean, he did. There were periods, of course, when the, there were exceptions to this, and you know, going up to, to blonde on blonde, of course, and then then actually, as we may have talked about uh, last year in the twenty first century podcast, you know, he focused a lot more energy in this century, in the last 20 years, on the arrangements. And actually, when he plays songs from those Latter-day albums, a lot of times they're pretty close to the album, actually, I would argue.
1: Yeah, I think that's because he's producing the albums now. And so there's even less filter between him and the record, which is what he's always wanted. So the records now are the ones that he's always wanted to make. It just took him, like, 40 years to realize that he could just do it himself
0: thought it'd be a good time to play some audio of an interview David Brown did a few years ago with Augie Myers, who's this legendary Texas musician. He played on Time Out of Mind and one other album Love and theft was it theft he was yep, yeah. love and theft, so he shared some memories of Latter Day Dylan that were pretty colorful, so we'll just hear a little bit of that
6: what what was your sense of the on time out of Mind of the relationship between Dylan and Lenoir and how they worked together? Well, they did. They worked together, I think, before a couple right. Of times.
3: Right. Mm-hmm.
7: And and uh, Daniel lenoir brought his own engineer.
3: Mm-hmm.
7: And, and you know, I think there was a little not animosity or I don't know, but it, they got along.
6: I mean, you know. Right. Well, Bob and Daniel both they both wrote books, and in both their books, they say the first record they did together, "Oh Mercy," in, in New Orleans, like almost ten years before this, went fairly well. Had a bumpy start, but went well. And and then they both say like. Uh, time out of mind was a little more difficult to nail down. Yeah. Uh, then neither, neither of them can quite figure out why it was just like uh, maybe they hadn't worked together at that point in eight years, and uh, you know, had to get well. Re- well, I think uh, both of them had different ideas.
7: Mm-hmm. You know, and and
6: I can understand Bob's side because, uh, you know, what well, what did you get a sense of what Lenoir wanted from those from those sessions or those records? I, I kind of I did. You know, I mean, he he
7: directed some of the stuff, but Bob would come in and say, "No, you know, I wanted." To or this way, I hear it this way, you know.
6: Mm-hmm.
7: And so I can understand Bob saying he wrote a song, he wants it a certain way.
6: Right. Yeah. It, it, it's it's a much more it's like an earthier record right. to me than, than maybe than Lanma normally has, has that sort of those sort of sonic soundscape things that he does really well. But and he did it really well on Oh Mercy, but maybe mm-hmm. um, maybe Bob didn't want it on this one. <laughs> well, you know, he yeah. did he did a lot
7: of stuff with too. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I yeah. think if you, if you have a hit record, a big hit record with one group, you're going to try to use that influence on somebody else. Right. You know.
6: Yeah, it's yeah. Totally different, black and white. Different. Right, right, right. W- would they debate in front of you guys, or was that something they talked no, about? They'd go, they'd go in the corner and, you know,
7: mm-hmm. mull around for a couple of minutes. hmm I remember sometime we'd be in the studio recording, and Bob would just get up from the guitar and walk out. We're just sitting there waiting what's going on, and about a half hour later, I said, Bob's outside riding his bike. Well, he, you mm-hmm. know, when he'd come back in, I'd say, hey, Bob, what's going on? And he said, oh, man, I want to do it my way. I'm going to do it this way, you know. And, I mean, he'd, he'd have to be by himself to figure out what he really wanted, and he did it that way. You
3: know? mm-hmm.
7: By bike, you mean the motorcycle? No, well, we had, yeah. uh, right. actual regular bicycles. Regular bicycles, <laughs>
0: So that was the legendary Texas musician Augie Myers with David Brown. And we're back to talking about Bob Dylan on his 80th birthday. Now, uh, number two on our list of the 80 greatest Dylan covers of all time is Nina Simone doing Just Like Tom Thumbs Blues.
1: When you're lost in Juarez And it's Easter
3: time to
0: Man, is that great! Like every one of her, she does just like a woman. And another, every one of her Dylan covers are just extraordinary and kind of just take them into a new, a whole other universe. There's so many people from so many different genres who sang Dylan songs, and so many people of color. Sam Cooke, "Blown in the Wind," is is at number seven. I think one of the things that people get a little bit confused about with Bob Dylan is, especially now, is like oh, he's just some like boring white male boomer. And the thing is, I think any fair assessment of his impact and his greatness kind of transcends that. Simon, would would that be fair? You want to kind of dig into that for a second?
2: Absolutely. I, I think you can see Dylan's influence across so many different genres, and it's incredibly reductive to view him as someone who's just part of one scene or one moment or one genre. Bob Dylan was famously incredibly influenced by great black artists who went before him. Odetta inspired him to pick up an acoustic guitar and sing, and he paid that influence forward on generation after generation of songwriters of all kinds, all genres. Uh, And that's one of the things that makes his discography last the way that it has. I mean, it's
0: obviously very interesting to see the influence going from, say, Odetta to Bob Dylan, and then Sam Cooke hearing Blowing in the Wind, and then then Sam Cooke turning around and writing A Change Is Gonna Come, in part inspired by Dylan. So, you know, he he is one of those people who helped make American music like a a series of tributaries, a series of of bodies of water that flow into each other, you know, and that's a a big part of what he did. Going to number three is uh, The Bird's Mr. Tambourine Man. Another interesting way to look at Bob's influence because, you know, folk rock exists because of Bob Dylan. And the McGuinn and Bird's connection to Dylan is very strong. Few people interpreted Dylan better. And it, it is, of course, interesting. There's a couple ways of doing it. You can sound nothing like Bob Dylan, like Nina Simone, and make great versions. Or in the case of the Birds and McGuinn, you can kind of sound like Bob Dylan, but maybe a little better in some ways. And do great versions. I mean, they have two in the top 10. Angie, what do you think of the the birds as Dylan interpreters?
5: Um, I mean, like anyone, I first heard those when I was like a kid, and it was always great. I didn't realize just quite how much they became known for those songs. And I just love McGuinn's history of covering Dylan. I think also on our list is the Blood on the Tracks outtake, Up to Me, that he covered in the late 70s, and it's completely different than The birds you can really see how much he carried his influence throughout his career.
4: It's also worth pointing out that cover versions were the ones that made Bob well known to the masses. You know, his early records were not hugely successful. I mean, they did okay, but it was, you know, it was Peter, Paul, and Mary's blowing in the wind. Uh, it was the birds, tambourine man, a couple of things like that that really helped make him uh, sort of a household name, if you can put it that way. So they, they played a really important role in getting the word out about him and establishing him as a major presence because, you know, he didn't sell a ton of records on his first couple albums and it really helped to have to have kind of more, you know, smoother commercial versions, which are totally valid, you know was really important to him
1: Yeah, And The Bird's Tambourine Man is kind of the song that ended the folk revival as it was and launched the folk rock era, which Bob was very quick to pick up on and so that song is just historically hugely, hugely important
0: yeah, I mean, it's important to recognize that Dylan himself heard Mr. Tambourine Man as like, yeah, I need to sound more like that, and like sort of, you know, picked it up from there. Another important connection was the sort of uh, George Harrison, Bob Dylan nexus, which was important. He was the Beatle that he really had this relationship with, and George worshipped Bob Dylan to an extent that that might be hard for people to understand from a Beatle. He was like a Bob Dylan stan. He was so in awe. Of Bob Dylan, as as you know, all the Beatles were, but, but George really loved Bob Dylan. If you you can watch one of his last interviews, that VH1 interview, and he's just quoting Bob Dylan like it's the Bible. I mean, he and and they were they were pals too.
1: Yeah, I think George looked at Dylan back then and it was just yearning to be that, yearning to be his own person that could put the songs on the record that he wanted to be the sole focus, to be the icon, to not just be one of four and always be fighting. He really just taken with the whole Dylan mythology from a very from a very early time.
5: We had that song as number six, It's If Not For You. And I do like that version a lot, but when I hear this song, all it makes me want to do is put on the bootleg one through three series because it's both of them together. I think it even opens with Bob saying, are you ready, George? And they do it. It just kind of reminds me of like how close they really were. And that's also why I think this is just a great cover.
4: And I don't know, I don't know how much, I mean, I'll just speculate here, but you know, certainly George was not feeling feeling the love in the Beatles at the time, the way they were, you know, passing on so many of his songs to include on Beatle records. And yet here was Bob Dylan befriending him, writing songs with him, you know, getting together with George in the studio in the spring of 70 for these kind of jam sessions that just came out recently. I mean, he was getting all of this respect and professional love as you say from Bob Dylan and not within his own band. You know, so that must have been very powerful for George at the time to get that kind of acknowledgement and that sense of recognition from Dylan.
2: I would just add that like, you know, you can, it's true that the friendship and sort of musical fellowship that George had with Dylan was very special and unique, but I think you can't also underrate the incredible impact that Dylan had on the rest of the Beatles. If you look at John Lennon's songwriting before 1964, when he heard and met Bob Dylan and afterward, and it's like a, a huge transformation in the, the kinds of subjects he was writing about and the way that he wrote about them.
4: The best story I ever heard or one of the best about this was when they were when the Traveling Wilburys record was being recorded at George's studio. Whenever Bob would show up, uh, George you know, had like a security camera thing and they'd watch as Bob walked up to the front door and buzzed to get in. And George was so he was so obsessed with this. He would ask to watch that tape over and over again to see just to see Bob walking up and pressing and buzzing in. He just was captivated by this.
0: It's always so wild. It's it's not quite the same, but it's like when you learn that Warren Zevon was like a Bruce Springsteen stand, like that he was like freak out every time before he got to hang out with Bruce. There's something charming and a bit weird when you when you hear the stories. But you know Warren Zevon wasn't in the freaking Beatles. Um, but number ten is White Stripes. One more cup of coffee.
3: When
0: you first heard the White Stripes. The fact that he loved Dylan wasn't necessarily evident until you got to stuff like that, and then you realize that this was someone who really was vying to be a retroactive part of the classic rock canon and, and could bring together Zeppelin and Dylan, and that's a, a lot of what The what the White Stripes and what Jack White is about, I guess.
2: There are some similarities between Dylan and Jack White, not to, not to equate them in terms of talent, but in terms of their approach to taking from older forms of music, recontextualizing them as their own thing, telling their own, own sort of... Uh, mythological version of their own backstories and changing their names and things like that. There are definitely some commonalities there.
5: And isn't it also that uh, famously Jack went over to Bob's house and he taught him how to weld fences together? They they keep doing that these days. It's like their thing.
2: I didn't know that Jack White taught him that. That's amazing. That's
5: a, or what an I think incredible Bob taught Jack, Jack White that.
0: Yeah, although they both could be lying. Who knows? But that is a story, though. Uh, just real quick, the fact that a Rod Stewart cover is on their Mommy Been On My Mind from
3: 1972
0: It just points to this sort of separate phenomenon which is, to anyone who wasn't like a rock critic in the 70s, it can sometimes be so weird to learn that Rod Stewart was once considered this like super super credible and serious artist rather than sort of a, a popular guy, and part of it was his uh, a and producer at that point, Paul Nelson, a former Rolling Stone writer, was just obsessed with getting him to cover Dylan stuff. Uh, and he was a great, great interpreter of Bob Dylan. So there's lots of sides to Rod Stewart as well. Uh,
4: speaking of it, didn't make the list, but the first record that Rod ever did with the faces, well, the First Step has a fantastic version of Wicked Messenger. And that was wow. a couple of years before this uh, Rod
1: solo. And then and then, strangely enough, that Rod writes Forever Young and he shows it to his people and they're like, hey, listen, Rod, that's a Dylan song basically, and he had no idea that he subconsciously had taken the song. So they share credit, but it's a very weird little side story.
0: I think one of the things that's so interesting about this list and thinking about all these connections is almost everyone takes you in a direction of some area of the Dylan map And number 14 is is, uh, Johnny Cash and June Carter singing Ain't Me, Babe. And, of course, the whole Johnny Cash and Dylan alliance was a whole story of of itself, right, Andy?
1: Yeah, that Bob worshipped him in the late 50s and was a huge, huge fan. in the 60s, as, as all the folkies started turning on Bob, it was Johnny that came to his defense in a very, very strong way. And they finally met in 64 and Johnny gave them a guitar and they formed a very tight friendship, it lasted for decades.
0: Number 16 is uh, Springsteen singing Chimes of Freedom with the E Street Band as he announced <laughs> the Amnesty International Tour. It's not actually recorded on the Amnesty International Tour. It's from a date on the Tunnel of Love Tour where he's like, I'm, I'm gonna going to be going, I'm not going to do the whole thing, but I could, you know, going out for six weeks with Sting. And um, But he covers up, does a really beautiful and very arena rock, very easy. Street version of Times of Freedom, which is kind of actually based on the, it's actually by the way a cover of the Birds' cover of Times of Freedom. It's not at all based on the Dylan's original arrangement where Bruce gets all those lie 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 lies and his song is from is, is that's where he gets it, from the Birds. so there's all these kind of like influences channeled through influences
6: Far between sundown spinning In midnight's broken toll
0: Bruce also covered, I don't think it's ever been officially released still, but he, he did a great slowed down cover of the song I Want You with the East Street Band, and that that's great. Andy, that, that's never, I don't even think that's been on an official bootleg, right?
1: Uh, I can't speak to that. It was playing 1975 in the brief era when Suki Lahav was playing violin, and the main point version from early 75 is, I think, Springsteen's best Dylan cover. And I think Bruce at first was sort of wary of covering Dylan because he was labeled as the new Dylan all the time. But that I Want You from 75 is just beautiful. It's possibly my favorite version of the song.
0: Yeah, it's great. Number 19 is the Isley Brothers doing Lay, Lady, Lay. Again, you know, Dylan can be done in a lot of different styles. Number 20 is Make You Feel My Love by Adele.
6: When the rain is blowing in your face And the whole
0: David, you did a whole story about the phenomenon of Make You Feel My Love. I mean, it's not arguably even that great a song. It's, it's just okay. And yet, Billy Joel recorded it, Adele recorded it. It's, it's become a standard. And maybe that's what becomes a standard, like a song that's like just pretty good. I don't know.
4: Yeah, it's it is now one of his maybe top five or ten most covered songs. I mean, I did that story, I think, about two years ago. And at that point... There were 400 versions of the song, which uh, and that includes people just one shot uh, performances on YouTube. It wasn't all big stars or anything, but it was it was up there. And I think the fact that it's sort of a power ballad in in a Bob kind of way, it's a song that could be sung by everybody from Adele to Garth Brooks to Michael Bolton. You know, it, it transcended Bob to that level. And it was funny when even in that story, I remember Michael Bolton telling me when he would introduce the song on stage and he would say, well, I'm going to sing this song by one well, of my favorite songs is Bob Dylan. And there'd be like silence in his audience. And then he would start to sing it. And then at the end they loved it, but you could tell like they weren't even making the connection at first that, Oh yeah. Bob Dylan wrote that song. So it's uh it's definitely bec- it's become, Absolutely one of his uh, most covered standards
2: and the mysterious ways of the business.
0: I think it's one of those songs that's maybe more fun to sing than to listen to. I'm not sure.
2: But if you're Adele or Garth Brooks or Michael Bolton or Billy Joel, you hear that song and it's a perfect song for you. It's not in, in many ways, as you're saying, Brian, it doesn't even sound like a Dylan song. It doesn't have that kind of multi layered, brilliant, is he joking or is he not quality. It's just a really straightforward, sweet love song. And I think it's a measure of how talented Bob is that he can write such an un-Bob song and have it work so well for other artists.
4: And and Billy Joel was the first person to cut it because he was just putting out a compilation at that time and they wanted to put some new songs on it. And Dylan had just done Time Out of Mind but hadn't released it yet, maybe. And and his people were, were actively looking for covers. It wasn't, you know, this is, again, something to always keep in mind. Bob's always, I think, had a pretty good, head on the shoulders as far as business. I mean, the basement tape songs were written to be covers by other people because he was off the road, his motorcycle accident and needed to make some money. So, you know, he wrote a bunch of catchy songs with easily singable choruses and those acetates of those songs were sent out to the birds and Manfred Mann and many people to, to cover, you
0: know. So is that why something like the Mighty Quinn is so just sort of upbeat? It's it's just purely him trying to get, or was it? What's the chronology? Is it possible he was inspired by some of the stuff on the White Album, or something like that? Is it, am I getting the chronology all screwed up?
4: White, yeah, White Album was a year or so later.
0: Well, isn't it even more amazing that he was inspired by the White Album? On it, it just shows the it shows the power of Bob Dylan. Who else could pull that off? I believe he's capable of that. "Sheryl Crow's Mississippi" is actually an example of. Bob as an A&R
3: guy.
0: In the sense that he had recorded Mississippi, didn't like what he did with it, and somehow figured out that show Crow was the perfect person to do that, which she in fact was. It's very interesting.
2: Yeah, although I'll, I'll just say that when a couple of years after that, Dylan finally got around to recording his own version of that song for Love and Theft, I, I think his version ended up being the definitive uh, Mississippi. His version, to me, is like miles ahead of the Sheryl Crow version in that case. I do like the
0: Sheryl Crow I, I think you're probably right, but I do like the Sheryl Crow version. And the Dixie Chicks did it as well, did they not?
5: They did. What I was going to ask was that I know the Sheryl Crow version is one of the rare instances where Dylan gave a song to someone before he released it. Are there any other major versions on this list of that?
0: Uh, ain't going nowhere, right? Some of the, I guess it's, so, it's, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: But that was basement tape stuff. I think Mississippi is the only song he ever recorded for an album, cut it, and then did it on a, a later album, or it's it's one of the very few, at least.
0: I'm not sure if I like Brian Ferry's Hard ransom Gonna Fall. It's interesting. I don't know if I think it's good. What do we think?
1: Oh, where have you been, my
0: blue-eyed son? Where have you been? My darling, That was considered pretty
4: blasphemous at the time because it was almost an irreverent version. It was not a you know a stern kind of folk version, you know, rendition. Uh, so you have to remember in the early in the early '70s when that came out, it was considered pretty pretty out there, and it was pretty controversial. A lot of people hated it, but I, I, listening back to it for this list, I, I really liked it a lot. I, I think again, it's a, an example of someone just like really recasting a song in their own milieu as it were. And I think it, it's it's aged really
0: well. Speaking of which, I, I get a kick at, I love My Chemical Romance and I get a kick of what they did, but I don't know, <laughs> it's Desolation Row. I, I can't tell if, if it's good or just sort of fun.
2: To me, I mean, look, there. to me, there's no topping the original Desolation Row, which is just like this all time classic Dylan song. But I will say I appreciate that MCR cover in the sense that it introduced that song to a whole new generation of people who now listen to and love that song, even if they're not listening to Bob's version. It helps the song live on, and you know, I appreciate that.
0: <laughs> That's not much of a compliment, but, but yeah, fair enough. Yes, it did help the—it did translate it to a new generation, and it was, it was interesting to hear them take it on. David, since you're a Jeff Buckley expert, him doing Just Like a Woman, what, was he actually inspired by the Nina Simone version a little bit?
4: That's a good question. I'm not really sure. I know he grew up, Jeff grew up hearing Bob Dylan records from like, you know, his mom and stuff. So she had all those. Uh, I don't know if she had Nina Simone records and he wasn't a big Nina fan. But he, uh, when Jeff moved to New York, especially in the early 90s, and he had an AR guy at Columbia who just like worshiped Dylan and Leonard Cohen and Haley Jackson and all these people and, and just gave Jeff all those, went into the, <laughs> the Columbia, you know. Uh, back catalog closet and just gave him all these records and, and that's when Jeff started really covering a lot of those songs and I think he, this version is uh, it adds a whole new kind of like tender aspect to it that you don't necessarily get in Bob's which is a uh, complicated uh, rendition I would think verbally
0: Let's play just a minute of David Brown talking with Rambling Jack Elliott about Bob Dylan. This is a story about hearing a song for the first time I think, at a party with Bob playing it.
3: Uh, Bob, I remember uh, whether it was that first time ever or just another time in Cambridge, we were at a party at Taj Mahal's house, and Bob was singing a song that he'd just written about Emmett Till. Mm. And he was standing in the living room surrounded by about 30 people. And if you were standing six feet away, you couldn't hear what he was singing mm-hmm. but because of the thick crowd around him. But I was standing one layer back from the center, and I could, I could hear what he was saying. And one of the people who was there, but I didn't know it then, was a young girl named Bonnie Raitt. Mm-hmm. And I later met Bonnie Raitt at a folk festival. And she was performing, and she said, do you remember being tossed at house and Bob was singing, and, I said, uh, and we were all there. And I said, oh, I didn't know who she was at the time. I, right. She was in the crowd, you know, but she was so proud to reminisce about that great party yeah. she was at, because I think that was the first time she'd ever met Bob. Wow. That was in uh, probably 1963. Yeah, what
6: was it like hearing him sing that song, like a protest political song? like yeah. That, yeah. There
3: was no microphone. It was right. a bunch of people, you know, and he was right. trying to sing it as loud as he could to project, you know, through the crowd so everybody in the room could right, hear right. But it wasn't loud enough to hear more than four people away, you know. Wow. But it was good. He wow. Was he had a tremendous amount of force of energy and emotion in his singing, but uh, n- most people didn't like the sound of his voice at all because it sounded like a kind of a teenager screaming at his parents or something. Right, right. Kind of a, it was a kind of a annoying, raspy tone. Right, right. And people were always complaining right, about his right. singing. Don't, thought, Don't worry about the singing, I listen to the words. I. I was always telling people to huh. shut up
6: and listen to it right yeah he was singing a song about that murder and Emmett Till and that I'm whole thing and and how powerful I mean was it very powerful hearing him? I
3: thought that was very powerful, yes yeah because you could feel his anger and mm-hmm. it, it he translated that very well through the words and kind of deliberately stupid strum that he invented on the guitar. Mm-hmm. He's a very good guitar player. I love that. Yeah. He played even back then. But he had invented a sort of a dramatized dumb strum. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just made that word up now to describe I like that. Yeah. what I mean. Uh, I never could find words to, to tell you what, what that strum mm-hmm. sounded like. But I just... I just found the words now, thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, gee, uh, that's what it was. It was kind of a deliberately monotonous and the rhythm and the speed would kind of speed up and slow down and speed up and slow down with the emotional content of the words. Mm-hmm. So it was, the guitar was directly wired to his, uh, his emotional state as he was singing. Right, right. And I thought that was even uh, a very clever way of having the guitar be part of the vocal. Yeah.
0: That was our show. Happy 80th birthday, Bob Dylan. And thanks to David Brown and Andy Martosio and Simon Bozick Lemonson and Andy Green. And we'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's volume channel 106 in the meantime of course Rolling Stone Music Now is a podcast download us as a podcast subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can and as always thanks for listening and we'll see you next week